really do on these podcasts at the moment is an ad for my own book. Block, Delete, Move On is being released by Penguin in February 2022, but it is available for pre-order now. Block, Delete, Move On is a guide for anyone who is dating, particularly women who date men, but uh, it has been read by a number of queer women who have said that they can apply it to their own dating life, although there are lots of bits that are specifically related to cis uh, heterosexual men. Um, It is what I would have wanted to read before I jumped fanny first into the dating scene, onto dating apps, uh, and, and then made a ton of mistakes got really hurt and I I wish that I'd had somebody to tell me all of these things it's not like other dating books that are like this is how you get your man it's a dating book that's like okay this is how we avoid the bad ones and if you've got all of this armory in your toolkit then you're much more likely to have better safer dating experiences Uh, if you want to pre-order it doesn't cost anything to pre-order they will ask for your card details but they don't take the payment until February. It's available on Amazon, Waterstones, Blackwells. Um, I'm not sure where else actually, but if you go to my um, story highlights on my Instagram page, la la la, let me explain. There's a story highlight called The Book and if you click there, there's lots more information about the book and links to swipe up and pre-order. Hello and welcome to the La 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 Let Me Explain podcast. I'm here with probably the, and this is not, you know, anything about my previous podcast guests, but the person who I'm most excited ever to have had uh, on my podcast, author Laura Bates. And I'm a massive fangirl. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll have seen me recommending Men Who Hate Women about 50,000 times. And I hope you've all bought it because it's essential reading. And if you haven't, you must, as is her other books. I, I haven't actually, so I've read Everyday Sexism, which is amazing. Again, recommend it to everyone, especially men. Um, I haven't read The Burning and Girl Up. Um, so you started off in kind of young adult fiction? Did... No, the other way around. Um, right. I started off with nonfiction um, and kind of adult nonfiction and then started doing loads of work in schools with young people and realising just kind of what a mess they were in and how little there was in the way of sort of lifelines for them and not wanting to go in for an hour and then just leave them in that mm. mess. I kind of wanted a bit of a sort of tool belt or like a kind of life ring to throw them so that's where Girl Up came from it was a kind of survival guide for teenage girls and then I started thinking about the fact that when I was a teenage girl I wouldn't have been reading non-fiction at all but I would have absorbed a lot from fiction and so that's when I moved into kind of YA novels so The Burning was the first of those novels that kind of deals with similar issues to my non-fiction work but in fiction mm. um, and that's going to be followed this September by The Trial which is the next one. Let's talk about The Trial because I literally just saw you post it on Instagram um, and it, it sounds fascinating can you explain what it's about um, well it's a it's quite a kind of exciting premise it's a sort of desert island group of teens stand, stranded on a desert island story um, but really it's my attempt to answer a question I'm kind of fascinated by which is what happens when a generation of girls grows up in a world where they learn that there is no justice for sexual violence. You know, if you're looking at girls in the UK, we're living in a country where just 1.5% of the rape cases reported to the police results in a charge or summons. 
if you're living in the US, you're in a country where, you know, 20 women can speak out with sexual harassment and abuse allegations and the alleged perpetrator becomes president, you mm. know, where you can share your trauma and your pain at enormous personal cost and then watch the person that you were talking about be elected to the Supreme Court. Yeah. So what happens to that generation of young women and, and what happens if they decide, how, how, how do we change things and what happens if they decide to take things into their own hands? It's, uh, I, I will read it. I know it's aimed, <laughs> it's, you know, young adult fiction, isn't it? But uh, I'll, I'll definitely read it. And I think it is such an important conversation to have. And it's, it's something that I feel really conflicted with, actually, because, you know, people often message me about sexual assault and rape mm -hmm. uh, and crimes that have been committed against them. Um, and and I am I'm always one to say, report it, you know, you deserve justice, this shouldn't have happened to you, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel that I'm not doing my job properly if I don't also balance, you know, urging people to report with the reality, which is that it's not going to be some easy ride where you're going to be believed necessarily. And even if you are believed, the the re-victimization and almost the re-rape re and re-assault of you at several points throughout the trial process, or even if you're lucky enough for it to get to trial, um, you know, they, they may take your phone and examine, um, you know, and, and sometimes leave victims phoneless for months and then lose their phones um you know you may have defense questioning you why you were there what you were doing what you were wearing who you've slept with in the past the fact that you enjoy kinky you know you it's not going to be an easy ride um and i and i hate that really and but but i i feel that i'm i'm not doing women justice if if i'm not saying report it but also know this is what happens and, and in a way then i feel like maybe i'm putting off people from reporting you know? Yeah, it's really difficult. What do we do? Well, I feel similarly conflicted. I think the answer is reform. Reform the criminal justice system. Reform the police. Tackle institutionalised racism and misogyny. Um, and there has to be appetite for that from within the institution, which at the moment there really isn't. No. Um, but, you know, it, it, if the system is completely broken and failing women, then it just simply is no longer a solution at that point to say to women, why aren't you reporting this? Why are 80% of rape cases unreported? You know, and it's it's just not good enough for Cressida Dick to come out and say you have the occasional bad apple mm. when you've got 600 Met police officers who've been accused of sexual violence since 2012 when four police officers a week are being accused of domestic abuse. You know, it's just mm. not good enough in, in the same way that it's just not good enough to try and pretend that institutionalised racism doesn't exist within the police. The only way to make those systems fit for purpose for survivors to feel safe coming forward, I think, is to reform and to train and to take the time to do that training and I think it's very easy to go oh well that's just impossible it's too big it's too big to imagine but actually I worked really closely on a project with the British Transport Police where they they really did just that they mm. found out that lots of women were experiencing sexual offences on public transport and they realised that 90% weren't reporting it 95% so they worked very closely with Everyday Sexism Project and with the End Violence Against Women Coalition and some other women's organisations and we essentially retrained 
trained 2,000 British transport police officers, but also kind of first responders, train drivers, bus drivers, from a victim-centred perspective. And we use the Everyday Sexism Project entries to do it. And you've got clear entries on there from people saying the terrible experiences they've had with the police, Mm. particularly women of colour, trans women, sex workers. And so it was from a really victim-centred perspective and it really educated police officers on the problems and barriers to reporting, on the different forms sexual abuse can take. And it had an incredible impact. It raised the reporting rates by about 30% and the detection of offenders. But the thing, the longest legacy, and for me, the thing that's quite emotional about it is that now if you run a search on the Everyday Sexism Project website, you can see if you use the term police, stories of negative experiences going to the police about this stuff and being dismissed or disbelieved or ignored. And then other stories which are very different where people are saying I reported this to the British Transport Police and I was really shocked by how seriously they took it or how well they dealt with it Mm. so change is possible you just have to have the political will to do it and why hasn't that been rolled out across the board I mean you've got the statistics to prove how successful that's been why why is that not in the Met and other forces that's a really good question it was rolled out to a few other regional forces and I've actually just been talking last week to a, a minister a government minister about exactly that there has been renewed interest in these issues in the wake of Sarah Everard's murder which in itself as we know is problematic because there were so many other murders happening that hadn't sparked the same degree of attention um but that attention is there and so this was the first point I made in that meeting with the minister that there is a program here which has been has a proven track record and mm. and could be rolled out so hopefully that might be something that gets off the ground that would be so good i did wonder if the, the reason that the sarah everard case got more attention was because it was nine thirty at night and y- you know there's been so many cases that have been a small paragraph on page six of the newspaper mm. because the woman was murdered after leaving a nightclub at 3 a.m and so that doesn't leave so many people going god that could have been me that could have been my my wife because we don't we don't go out at 3 a.m and people who do you know uh and I, I did wonder if it was that but then there was julia james murder not long after and that was in broad daylight w- walking her dog and, and and there was a bit of news about it but it there wasn't i, I did kind of wonder really what was it about sarah everard you know because even before we knew it was a police officer it was a huge reaction to it and perhaps it was just timely or sparked something didn't it I think we still have a real problem with this idea of the perfect victim. You know, the the young, white, middle-class, photogenic person Mm. who attracts this sympathy. And in the wake of that horrendous murder, there were trending on Twitter. Um, She was just walking home and she did all the right things. And I understand where the sentiment behind that came from. But the implication is if she hadn't, she wouldn't have been worthy of this outpouring of of grief. You know, a woman who is drunk at two o'clock in the morning in a dark alleyway in a short skirt, you know, while she wasn't doing the right things. And the the end point of that is so she might, might have known she was going to be raped. You know, she was asking for it. And, and it's really problematic. And you're right, I think the involvement of a police officer created a bigger outcry, but that, that can't be solely responsible for it because, you know, a year earlier, Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman had been... Mm murdered and police officers had taken photos next to their murdered bodies and shared them and the same level of outrage simply hadn't emerged so I do think we have a real problem with who whose cases matter whose death matters Mm. um you know what justifies and what triggers a public response and and when we feel that someone is deserving of of grief and sympathy 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad, isn't it? There is, I mean, it, and it's like there are so many areas that, that need to be changed for all of this reform to happen because it's not just the police that needs to be reformed. It's the media, it's, you know, the law, it's... Yeah everything absolutely you had the media platforming people on our some of our biggest national radio shows um to say that women are hysterical and that women were overreacting in the aftermath of the sarah everard death you've got police officers violently dragging away women holding a peaceful vigil uh, the police put out a number of statements around that time saying we just want women to find a safe way yeah. to do this safely and you think how dare you mm. how dare you say now that you want women to be safe when you're failing the one woman every three days who's murdered in the uk by a current or former partner yeah the gall of that i think really struck a chord and and then the media the way in which the media covers this stuff you know around the same time you had the everyone's invited story and these explosions of of testimonies coming out of schools and it was covered on the front pages as a sex scandal mm. that was the terminology they used and politicians then coming forward saying well this is shocking this is outrageous. What a shock. Mm. When just a few years ago, the government's own Women and Equality Select Committee carried out an extensive inquiry into sexual violence in schools, presented their findings to the government, clearly saying that this was rife and that girls were being abused. The government has known, we've all known for many years, that one in three teenage girls in the UK say they experience sexual assault at school. Mm. We've known for years now that um, in a three-year period, 600 rapes were reported to police and 5,500 sexual offences as having occurred in UK schools, which is on average one rape per day of the school term. But if the media presents this kind of government response of what a shock at face value, then no one's held to account. So it's it's everything, you're right, it's every level of the process. So multifaceted. Do, do you think that everyone's invited, got the reaction it did because it involved public schools? I think perhaps it was seen as a kind of juicy, scandalous story. But actually, as as the people from that campaign have repeatedly tried to point out since, it is an absolutely endemic issue. And they've yeah. got thousands of stories from state schools as well. I think there's a risk in the media kind of suggesting that this is just a public school problem, when the reality is, you know, I, I go into about two schools a week all over the country, all different kinds of schools, single sex, mixed schools, state schools, private schools, rural schools, inner city schools. And there is no school where this isn't a massive problem no it's interesting I was talking about this on uh, on a thread that I did where I, I used to teach sexual health and relationships uh, education in schools many years ago for, for the NHS and there was a, there was a definite kind of difference in the uh, fee-paying schools um, in the attitude of the of the boys they were I mean you know we got poor attitudes from boys and girls actually across the board but it was the first time that I had really felt like they, the children were looking at me like I was completely below them. And it was a boys school as well. And, and they were, the attitudes were so gross about working class women. And they were saying stuff about, you know, they'd fuck, fuck a chav, but you'd have to worry about the smell and, you know, all this stuff around, you know, going down to council estates because you can get a blowjob more easy, you know. And it was really shocking to me that the level of the misogyny and classism that was combined within these boys. Um, and then also the knowledge that actually these boys are more likely than, than the boys in the state school next door to hold positions of power yeah. in society because that's just how it works. Um, 
And I just found it terrifying. And and this was years ago. This was before the inception of the internet and social media. I mean, the internet was around, but, you know, it wasn't 2003 or something. Um, And it it feels just things are getting progressively worse, Mm. you know. Uh, And you talk a lot about that in Men Who Hate Women, about, you know, how, how these ideologies, which actually should be considered extremist terrorism um are just being allowed to fester and grow and spill out and what can we do well i think noting it naming it recognizing it is the biggest first step because you're right i mean these ideologies are being very specifically and very cleverly targeted at boys boys are being groomed and radicalized we just don't use those terms to describe it as we would if it was another form of terrorism what that means is that it isn't on anybody's radar it's not on the radar of teachers or schools it's not particularly on the radar of even programs like prevent which are specifically designed to be training people to tackle this it's not on the radar of our government counter-terror organizations it's not on the radar of parents so it's able to have this hugely powerful and detrimental impact on on boys and boys attitudes because it's happening so covertly so i think getting people to recognize it and see it is the first step and that's very much why i wrote men who hate women because it, it was so huge and yet so unknown and then the next step is treating it with parity to those other crimes you know if men are massacring people around the world because of the fact that they are women and they despise and hate women and think all women should be murdered or kept as sexual slaves and they are open that they have massacred women in the name of that ideology in order to create terror amongst women there's no box that that doesn't tick on the international definition for terrorism and this is something that's happened again and again you know it's not just Elliot Roger who's obviously the most kind of famous example his Santa Barbara massacre but also Alec Manassian the Toronto van attacker and and lesser known experiences like a a boy in Toronto who massacred a woman with a machete um, another man in Canada around a year ago who attacked a woman and her toddler daughter with knives in a supermarket parking lot a teenager here in the UK who went on an attempted murder spree, Ben Moynihan, and stabbed three women in the space of a couple of months, sending notes to police saying, I despise women, I want to gouge their eyes out. You know, this is something that has happened in the last 10 years. Over 100 people have been murdered or seriously injured explicitly in the name of these ideologies. And yet the vast majority of people have never even heard of them. They don't Mm. know that the problem even exists. And misogyny is not even a hate crime. Exactly. At present. Although I think that they're trying to to change that but uh, so for people who haven't read men who hate women you probably don't know that uh, you know it, it sounds almost like oh you know these are a few nutters as as people might say these are boys who are unwell which is always what we say about these white boys who mm-hmm. do crazy you know they're mentally ill uh, and i'm actually i'm sure there is an element of mental Ill, Ill health somewhere um to be able to do that but but it's not just a lone nutcase that there's actually they are being bolstered and supported by thousands of people on these incel forums um who who then see these boys as gods for for carrying out rapes assaults murders mm-hmm. uh and and absolutely idolize them and then and then the other sad boys on these forums then aspire you know they feel no you know there's probably a bit of covert narcissism in there they feel that the world owes them something and they're not getting the praise that they deserve and then actually that looks like well everybody remembers Elliot Rogers name Mm. maybe I can get my infamy from carrying out something like this so it's kind of a vicious circle um 
so so it's it's I, I mean I read the book and I was just like oh how do I raise a son to to not just slowly slip into this mm. because I think it can easily happen especially when it's master's memes and jokes mm. and that's the kind of route in because uh, you pretended to be an incel for a while didn't you how how did you cope with that well, I felt like I really wanted to portray exactly what you've just described. I didn't want to just present the kind of dark forum side of things because I know how easily people can go, oh, but that's a tiny group of losers on the internet that would never reach my child because they'd never go looking for it. I wanted to show the pathway and how slippery that slope is for a kind of quote unquote normal young guy to slip down. So I created this persona of Alex, uh, this young guy on the internet to show how easily it can start with the jokes and the memes. And it's very deliberate. It's no mistake these men actually talk amongst themselves quite openly about targeting boys of 11 and they describe the use of these memes and jokes and kind of cultural touch points as adding cherry flavor to children's medicine they know exactly what they're doing and it might start with a meme on a kind of social media site and then it might lead to perhaps a, a forum where people are sharing slightly more extreme and edgy humor and then perhaps there's a gaming site where there's a kind of strategy chat room and things start to escalate from there or there's a bodybuilding forum that you've signed up to because you feel a bit insecure and pressured about projecting a certain kind of masculinity and of course that creates a target of sitting ducks really it creates a kind of self-selecting community of boys already very vulnerable to these kinds of messages and it just very very gradually slides from memes and jokes and banter and ironic humor into unironic Mm. not joke statements but it would be very difficult to put your finger on where it stops being funny anymore mm. and that means that boys are being pulled into this ideology without necessarily even knowing it they might never have visited an incel forum they might not be a member of a men's rights group but it doesn't mean that they're not immersed in those ideologies sort of upstream through the way in which it's it's disseminated through social media mm. i guess the brainwashing can all sort of start to make sense you know as you move through life and perhaps get rejected by a girl in favor for a boy who you know is not really into her and just wants to have sex with her and so you start going oh yeah they're right you know women are bitches women do just want the big muscular guy or whatever and yeah so I guess as as, as wild as it seems to us if you're just getting that drip drip effect and then you're seeing things within your life that that go oh well actually yeah that's right um how, how do you how has this work that you do made you feel differently about men in general <laughs> well I'm very lucky to have wonderful men in my life and I've always felt since the beginning really um sort of mildly surprised at first and then really saddened by this attitude that you have to hate men you know to do the work that I'm doing um that in order to write a book about men who hate women you have to hate men um because the reality is kind of the opposite you know really what we're talking about is something that is desperately damaging and harmful to men and boys something it's a tragedy for young men that they are vulnerable to this particular form of abuse and it is abuse and these boys are being exploited and they are being groomed and radicalized and they're very vulnerable and and they're not experiencing support for their mental health elsewhere they're not finding the answers to those kinds of questions about you know how do i talk to a girl elsewhere they don't have spaces elsewhere in their lives where they're able to go to get that sense of 
camaraderie and belonging and being a kind of crusader, a brother in arms with a mission that these groups are providing for them because youth centres and spaces where they could gather and experience that have been systematically slashed by government funding cuts. Mm. So actually, it is kind of for the love of men in many ways doing this work. And it's very much an internet myth, you know, that you either care about women and girls and feminism, in which case you're throwing men under the bus and you hate them, or you recognise that men are the ones with the real problems and women are making a fuss about nothing because as soon as you look into any one of those arguments which is held up on the internet as a kind of trump card against feminism how can you bang on about claiming that women are victims of sexism when the male suicide rate is three times higher than it is for women for example very recognizable online argument as soon as you delve into that you see that we're talking about exactly the same problem we we ought to be on the same side because if you really care about male suicide then what you care about or should be caring about is the enormous problem that men don't get support for mental health problems at mm. anywhere near the rate that women do that even by the time they reach university male students are only about a third of those accessing counseling services and that comes from bringing boys up in a world that teaches them boys don't cry men are tough and manly and they don't show vulnerability well voila calciprise that's a gender stereotype right yeah and they never exist in a vacuum the other side of that coin women are over emotional and hysterical and hormonal and they can't control their emotions and you can't let them in a science lab because they'll cry or fall in love with you and you couldn't elect one to be president if she was menopausal because hormones and the nuclear button you know these are recognizable problems and they're completely and utterly intertwined together it's not men against women it's not these disparate things and one undermines the other it's all part of the same problem that we're trying to tackle yeah it's it's so hard um it's hard isn't it i'm 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 writing a book at the moment which is it's, it's meant to be a dating book that pretty much for people anyone who dates men really mm-hmm. and and I'm trying to capture that whole thing of actually there are you know there are some real issues with men as a collective whole individually there's some bloody great ones you know and as groups there's some great ones too but you know there there are some significant issues and it's not actually men it's toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and it's those men who subscribe to that without realizing that there is actually there's another way you know it doesn't that's not what you have to be um and so you know the book is really all about thinking about how misogyny might impact on dating and and how you know ideas about sex and women's gender roles and all of those things they, they have a huge we have to look out for those red flags because dating those types of men is never going to be okay mm. but what I feel like I haven't really kind of put in the book is 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 anything about but then how do we should we even be trying to attempt to change those men? You know, I, I mean, personally, I think if you go on a date with someone and there's huge red flags for misogyny, you shouldn't stick around trying to change him. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is one of the questions as well. You know, if it's somebody who's kind of in your life and maybe you see potential in somebody, but there are these kind of few red flags, how do we how do we get through to them to kind of go, this is in your best interests mm-hmm. to let go of these ideals, you know? I'm not sure how we do it. I think we have to start earlier with it. I think, Mm. you know, adult women are not rehabilitation centres for damaged men, and and too many of us are, I think. And, Mm. And I think it's really important that 
we are showing men the means to rehabilitate themselves and that that is something that men need to work on and men need to tackle. And I think that it's it's so much easier to tackle it before it happens. You know, we know that it is just a million times easier and cheaper and more realistic to prevent someone from becoming radicalised in the first place, for example, than to de-radicalise them later. Yeah. And the same, I think, is true of, of all kinds of, of toxic masculinity and, and internalised misogyny, you know, to whatever extent they show up. If we can crack that at the beginning if we can stop it from being so seductive in the first place if we can give young people the tools to think critically about this stuff and to kind of be prepared to challenge it when they encounter it rather than leaving it all unspoken so that they encounter it in the world around them and simply internalize that as a part of the way the world is yeah that for me is the more realistic path which Mm. isn't a particularly useful answer for someone now encountering this in their dating life i think i think i would be very wary i think well i mean i think that that that's the message in my book is just misogyny is you're never going to be able to have a healthy relationship mm-hmm. if you are a woman in a relationship with a misogynist well yeah. anyone really in a relationship with misogynist is probably not gonna have a good time but I mean that's really the message I'm trying to get across is actually that's it's a huge factor in dating mm. it's a huge factor in even the, the you know I say in quote marks small things like having sex with somebody who you thought was probably going to stick around and then they ghost, you know, a lot of that is wrapped up in the whole sexual pursuit of women, women mm. as objects, you know, yeah. there's so much tied into our dating experiences that is influenced by toxic masculinity and misogyny. Um, yeah, and I, and I don't think that, yeah, like you say, it's not our responsibility to change them. It's actually our responsibility to spot them and avoid them mm. in, in the first place. But I guess as, as, you know, I'm a mother of a son and that's where my real responsibility lies in breaking the narrative and, and sh- you know, battling against all the stuff that he sees. But how, so how, how do you get through to men who are in denial about sexism and don't want to listen outside of the dating sphere? I guess, mm. you know, in the dating sphere, just tell them to fuck off. <laughs> I don't want to have another date with you. But if these people are your colleagues and your brothers and and, and whoever else, and they're sitting there saying feminism isn't needed anymore. Yeah. What, what is there a key phrase or is there something? <laughs> it's like, it's like a magic kind yeah. of formula. Um, it's a really good question. It's probably the most common question I, I'm asked ever at events. And I also think it's the hardest one. You know, it's really painful. It's so painful when these are men in your own life who you know to be good people in many ways or men who care about you who still can't get it. And I think it's really traumatic for many women having to have these conflicts and these labours of trying to teach those men in their lives about it is a really really hard thing I think there are lots of different answers to it the first answer is that really this is men's job men are lining up at the moment to say I want to be an ally what do I do what's my place in this movement and I think the answer is your place is talking to other men men who have been conditioned not to necessarily hear this from women but who might hear it from other men because of exactly the problems that we're describing your place isn't to look for a place for yourself in the feminist movement it's to take the spaces that are yours in society and make them feminist it's to find space for these conversations in those male-dominated areas that we don't necessarily have access to you know where Donald Trump would have us believe that it's all locker room banter and that's just what boys are like it's for the boys in those spaces to challenge it and to step up and to say no Um, when you're having conversations yourself though with men who are in your life I think 
There is a knee-jerk, panicked, defensive reaction that sometimes comes if you try and have a big conversation about this. People hear I'm being accused of something, I'm being accused of being a sexist, and they panic and they kind of can't hear what you're saying. So for me, the most successful way to tackle it is little and often. It's not one big kind of important speech that's all very heightened and kind of terrifying. It's lots and lots and lots of tiny ones. It's pointing it out when it happens. It's picking up on stuff that they might not otherwise have noticed because they don't have to because they don't experience it. It's letting them know how different their lives are from ours. And this is a burden that women shouldn't have to face. And, you know, and I recognize that sharing your own experiences isn't for everyone and it can be traumatic. But in my experience, many of the times I've seen men have a real light bulb moment. It's been when women in their lives who they care about have told them about the daily drip, drip, drip of experiences that they've had since childhood. Mm. I had a really memorable experience with my own husband, actually, um, when it was perhaps about seven or eight years ago, when we were talking about the journey from our house to the bus stop. And it was like a kind of five minute walk. And for him, it was something he did at any time of day without even thinking twice about it. But for me, it was something that I did constantly looking out for a particular dark green car because it had once slowed down next to me and the guy had wound the window down and said, you walk down here every Wednesday and Friday at 10am, don't you? And then I crossed the street because there's a fishmonger where the guys will stand outside and they rate the women out of 10 as they're going past. And he grabs a cup of coffee on his way to the bus stop, but I have to go awkwardly up beyond the bus stop to a different coffee shop and then come back because the guys in that coffee shop that's conveniently on the way to the bus stop have a competition running about how many women's numbers they can get and we had this whole conversation and he just looked at me and said it's the same road but it's not the same road Mm. we were living in the same world and yet we're living in completely different worlds at the same time and for many men that can be the light bulb moment and it's wrong it shouldn't be they shouldn't have to hear about someone who they care about to recognize the the massive problem that there is but but in many cases that is what kind of opens their eyes to it and it can be a very moving conversation yeah and I I think it's it's a kind of it's a very difficult one my dad is I mean if you said to my dad you're a misogynist he would be no I'm not I've got two daughters you know we were in the car with my dad and my son the other day and my dad had the window down and he was ogling all these women and young girls. Um, not young, you know, I mean, they were over 18. They just don't want to make my dad seem like, even though I'm not painting him in a very great light, but it wasn't, they weren't girls. Um, and he started saying, oh, I love the summer. I love it when all the girlies get their, their legs out. And, you know, and my son's in the back of the car and I was like, dad, that's, like ugh. um and and he was like oh come off it you know you take it all so seriously well this is what men do they like to look at half naked women and the summer gives us that opportunity to do it and i thought i can either have a have a big argument here because that's all it will turn into and that's what i find is problematic as you say you know with these attempting to have big conversations or address these things head on is that actually then you get into a battle and there was no way of me having that conversation to say, that's horrible and you've got two daughters and how do you feel about men doing that to us? You know, because his answer would probably be a very defensive, well, that's just what men do, it's harmless, you know. Um, But in that moment, I chose to not say anything at all um, because I just wanted to avoid the the confrontation. Uh, And then I addressed it with my son later that day and sort of explained 
granddad is, you know, from a different generation where people thought that that was okay and now it's not. And we spoke a lot about how a woman might feel and how I feel when it happens to me. Um, but it's such a, you know, I, I can protect my son from it. I can keep my son away from my dad as much as possible, though I don't necessarily want to do that because he's a very good granddad in many other ways. Um, but there is always going to be that thing in my son and everybody else's son's life where you've got one, you know, if you've got a good, strong mum or women in your life who are saying, nah, you're always going to have that conflicting view from people who they idolise and who they think are wonderful, like rappers and their granddads and the footballers, and um, which is what makes me keep feeling like, oh, it's just such a hard it is. slog, isn't it? And it shouldn't be on us, you know? It shouldn't be on women trying to desperately find ways to overcome the misogyny all around us. You know, mm. this is men's job. This is men's problem. It's a problem with men and it's men's job to fix it. It is. And this is where we need male role models to be the ones having those chats with the boys in their lives because, yeah. as you say, it's who they look up to. So it's about male role models in the kind of public sphere and we are seeing that. We're seeing men like Jordan Stevens, for example, talking about this a lot, speaking up about it. Um, we're seeing men like Ben Hurst, we're seeing men like um, we're seeing men like uh, Robert Webb writing books about mm. this. You know, you you have got men starting to talk about it. You've got guys like Daniel Radcliffe. You've got Obama. You know, you've yeah. got Trudeau. You've got people talking about feminism and talking about this stuff. But it's also about the men in boys' lives individually being the ones to have that chat. I get asked so often what mums can do to raise feminist sons, and I think, what about dads? You yeah. know, this yeah. is on dads to be sending that message, mm. and I think that's really important difficult isn't it because the guys who do put their head above the parapet to become allies are often accused of being simps yeah. beta males um pussies there's a guy here i'm quite friendly with called Sideman. i don't know if you've seen him david whiteley he was a, a radio uh, one extra um presenter but he left there and he just does lots of stuff on on instagram he's got his own podcast big up Sideman, and he has started doing a lot of um male allyship stuff mm -hmm. and and he just gets battered down by men who are like you're only doing this so that you can fuck girls you know you're clearly doing this to you've got you've got you know ulterior motives um and i think we shouldn't underestimate how hard that is for men to go against the grain yeah it is um you know so it's one thing to say we need more male allies but but actually i think we should also be going oh, that's bloody hard yeah it is hard but it's also welcome to our world yeah right? you yeah know, like the abuse that women get for talking yeah. about this stuff it's kind of a, a another version of that and then it is still what we need men to be doing i think when they get that response it means they're getting under the skin of the kind of patriarchal sort of knee-jerk status quo trying to reassert itself you mm. know any kind of challenge to that will get these kinds of responses and I'm really sensitive to that with boys especially because I know that there are boys at school who are trying to stand up to this stuff and and then they describe the homophobic abuse often that they get as a result you know mm. you must be gay then if you don't want to send these nudes around of girls or that kind of thing yeah you know and the kind of the attacks that they get so it, it is hard and I talk to that with boys at school you know when we're asking boys to stand up to this acknowledging that it isn't an easy thing to do mm. but that doesn't mean that it's not the right thing to do and the more men who do it the less extreme extraordinary and the less worthy of comment and ridicule it will become of course and yeah. the easier and easier it will get i think the even more challenging thing is when you have male allies and then you have women in the comments like no this isn't true men, <laughs> men are so great you know it's yeah. internalized misogyny misogyny i guess we call 
them pick me girls um, because it because it feels like it comes from a place of the only reason that I'm defending men and minimizing women's experiences is because I want to impress men who, mm. are, who are reading these comments. Um, but it's very difficult because in a way, who am I to say you have to take this worldview that, of, that, that I believe in Otherwise, you're you're carrying internalized misogyny, you know. Yeah. Well, I had a, a brilliant conversation with Gloria Steinem about this, where someone asked this question: "You know, are women really their own worst enemy?" And she said, "Women don't have the power to be their own worst enemy. Keep your eye on where the power is." And I think that's just such a great answer because, of course, it's true, right? Of course, there are people of all genders who are sexist or who are perpetuating this stuff, you know, and there are men who are standing up to it as well. But you're right, you know, internalised misogyny is a, is a coping mechanism. It's developed in a world in which women have been taught from an incredibly young age that we are each other's competition, you know, that we have to hold each other down. But an obsessive focus on that, you know, on the idea of kind of so-called queen bee syndrome or, you know, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women, it lets men off the hook. Men are quietly sidling happily out of the picture while we're having this conversation. Mm. And what about men who don't support women? Why is it all on the women to do it? You know, I, I don't feel comfortable with that you know we live in a world where girls are five when they start to worry about the size and shape of their bodies and by seven a quarter of girls have dieted to lose weight and by 10 it's 80 percent and yet these girls who are sent such powerful messages from such a young age that their body is all that they are that thinness is their only value that that's their major currency when they then grow up to buy women's magazines which promise them so-called remedies to the so-called problems with their bodies we then point to them and go see women are the problem you know i can't count how many times at events are a man has put his hand up and said well women's magazines are written and bought by women so aren't women just the problem and you think yeah because they grow up in a world where buying those magazines is presented as the obvious solution to everything that's going on you know like you can't take this out of context I think and kind of blame people who are reacting to a very unequal world it's it's yes those people exist and that is part of what we're dealing with but we mustn't take our eye off the ball of recognizing the bigger inequalities surrounding them and driving that behavior which is the real problem that we're tackling yeah yeah and how do we spot a fake feminist man that the ones that are genuinely doing it because it is an easier way to win women over well i think actions speak louder than words don't they it's about you know it's about consistency um Boris Johnson stood up in Prime Minister's Questions recently and used the term everyday sexism and said that he felt that, you know, if we're going to really tackle violence against women, we need to recognise the spectrum of, of normalised everyday sexism that kind of enables it. And I think some people would have thought I would have been thrilled about that, having spent 10 years battling and campaigning for that precise idea of the spectrum and everyday sexism to be something that people recognised. But here you have a prime minister who has advocated for patting women on the bottom and sending them on their way if they trouble you in the workplace, who has described Muslim women as looking like letterboxes and bank robbers and described his delight at watching the glistening otters of the women's basketball, volleyball, whatever it was, players at the Olympics. You know, this is a man who told people to vote Tory because it would make their wives' breasts grow bigger and a man whose response to the epidemic of sexual violence and violence against women was some more CCTV cameras. This is not a man who is listening to mm. women. This is not a man who put women in any proportionate way in the response teams to the COVID crisis and we saw the impact of that in desperate ways. Uh, this is not a man who seems to be interested in taking on board the expertise of the women's sector and the years that they 
they spent actually working on responses to this particular problem. So I think similarly, if it's a man in your own life, listen to what he says, but then see if he puts it into action or not. Yeah. Yeah, I've written a section, so I've done... In, in my book, there's this uh, bit about how you can spot the different fuckboys, you know, the misogynist, the <laughs> spiritual fuckboy, and, and feminist, fake feminist fuckboy is, is one of them. <laughs> so buy the book if you want to know. But, you know, I talk about how, um, look at, you know, actions speak a lot louder than words. He can sit there telling you everything he want, he knows you want to hear, but who does he hang out with? Like, mm-hmm. what are his mates like? And is he pulling them up on things? You know, I think that's something that's a, a big red flag. You can say you're a feminist, but if your mates are all having bets about who can shag the fittest bird or whatever, mm-hmm. then kind of a bit inconsistent there. Yeah. Um, and, and, and how, you know, even how they treat waiting staff or mm-hmm. you know there'll be subtle ways in which you can tell you know a real feminist man is going to leave a tip for the woman who just served him um so so i think that i mean you're not to blame if you don't spot one but woke fishing is is a thing now people mm-hmm. will pretend that they're a feminist or they pretend that they're affiliated with more progressive political parties because they know that that's au fait you know they, they know that that's what people want to see on dating apps mm-hmm. uh and then they re- re- reveal their true colors and i think that that's part of what we have to do is is actually respond and react when we do see the red flag come up because there will be you know if there is a red flag then you react to it and i think part of the problem with dating so slightly off topic is that we don't react we see the red flags and we don't react to them Mm. until they until there's multiple red flags and it's kind of too late um well we're definitely institutionalized to do that right i mean as women we are taught from such a young age that the comfort and um, security of the men around us is more important than our safety i i interviewed a young woman once who'd shared her story with the everyday sexism project about being assaulted on a bus when she was 14 and a man had come and sat next to her she was wearing shorts because it was summer and she'd moved upstairs because she felt uncomfortable and he followed her upstairs and struck up a conversation and she said she'd taught to be polite so she'd been taught to be polite she didn't think she could ignore the guy and when he started stroking and putting his hands on her legs and her thighs she looked around and there were other people on the bus but she didn't think that she should bother them so she had learned at 14 she had learned that as a girl it was her duty to be polite to make other people feel at ease to be pleasant you know but no one had ever taught her that no one had the right to touch her without her consent the lessons that we teach girls and the lessons that girls learn implicitly she said after that she learned a lesson and she never wore shorts in the summer again Mm. and you just think we socialize girls from toddlerhood you know uncle such and such wants a kiss you give him a kiss you know um be polite be quiet don't make too much noise don't be seen as angry or difficult particularly if you're a young black girl you know this this indoctrination of course follows us into our dating lives where we're taught to be kind of grateful for any attention because meeting a man is of course the kind of heteronormative aim life goal of end point of any woman's happiness you know so much of this is is kind of sewn into our dna by the world around us from such a young age so i think that finding ways to dismantle that in ourselves can be really hard oh it's 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 such a challenge um how do we cope with subtle sexist comments in the workplace i know we've spoken about men and families and 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 all of that kind of stuff but it's even more difficult particularly if you're in a very male-dominated environment it's a career that you want that you've worked for that you need yeah 
And then you're surrounded by people making comments, maybe not directly at you, but things that are not nice. Yeah. You know, it's such a challenge. It's such a challenge. It's really hard. Workplace sexual harassment is so common. It affects over half of all women, two thirds of young women. And this fear of not being believed, of being seen as a feminazi, of rocking the boat, overreacting, a ball breaker, and of it negatively impacting your career is massive. So 80% of women don't report it. But when you give that stat, people go, all right, so that's the problem. Then women need to report it and then we'll fix the problem. But actually, no one ever looks at the other stat in that same report, which is on what happens when they do. Of the women who reported it, 75% said nothing changed and another 16% were treated worse as a result or lost their jobs. So there's your reason for why women don't report it. They're rightly concerned about the impact on their careers. Men don't often face repercussions and women often do face negative consequences. So I think really the onus has to be on work places to really put proper procedures in place reporting procedures policies that are victim-centered and and act against any kind of backlash but for women I think a, a lot of it comes down to knowing your rights you know under the Equality Act you have a right to work in free of an atmosphere that is offensive humiliating degrading there's a brilliant phone line that's run by Rights of Women a fantastic yeah. charity you can ring up and run stuff by them because so many of the women who contact us at Everyday Sexism what they're describing what they're going through at work and enduring is illegal but they don't think it is they think they just have to deal with it so partly knowing your rights partly keeping a record so it can be really useful especially if it's that low level stuff where you think if I went and told someone about that one comment I'd be laughed out of the room but if it's happening every day keep a note of dates and times anyone who witnesses it and just jot down exactly what's said and then you've got more of a dossier to present to kind of give a sense of how this is building up and the kind of in context these remarks have have a a bigger impact on your career and on your experience of the workplace another thing that can be useful is groups of people reporting together because it takes away from that risk of one person being kind of sick sort of singled out and seen as a uh, you know rocking the boat and losing their job if an entire team all say together actually there's an issue here all the more so even better if there are male allies involved in calling it out, saying, look, we've noticed this, this is a problem. You do have the right to take a case to tribunal, but there are time limits depending on the kind of tribunal. Usually it's just three months, so it's worth being aware that that clock is ticking. Um, but Rights of Women is a really, really good place to start. I yeah, say. I had Deba on the podcast, Deba Saeed, okay. who runs the workplace um, harassment uh, line. So if you want more on that, you can listen to the podcast or contact uh, Rights of Women Um directly i think it's really challenging when it's really subtle Mm -hmm. you know like if somebody says something like come over here and you know what they mean yeah and you knew they meant c-u-m not c-o-m-e but but if you report that then people are going to go what's wrong with saying come over here you know stuff like that and i think it can become really difficult um and but but I, i think that is in the most important thing is getting that firm in your mind that that actually it's not okay and if you think it's not okay and it doesn't feel okay then it's probably not and that there is support available out there but also you don't have to stay you can become that champion who tries to change for you know fight for a change in culture in the workplace you can put yourself out there if that's what you want to do but you don't have to do that you know you're not failing if you go this isn't changing. I'm too afraid to do anything about it. And and we shouldn't be the ones that have to leave, but also you shouldn't have to sit there and stay in some sense of kind of, 
you know, you don't have to feel like you have to be a fighter. You don't, you, it's not your responsibility to challenge all of this and change all of this. If it's harming you, yeah. taking yourself out of it is probably the more sensible thing. Um, how do we shift the current negative perspective of feminism? <laughs> Well, I think the first thing is to recognise where it comes from. Because when people ask this question, what they're kind of implying is, uh, or, you know, often when I get this question from boys at school in particular, there's this implication of, like, feminists have messed this up, you know, like, feminists have, some feminists have just gone too far, and so it's got these negative connotations. And I think it's really important to say, yes, there are negative myths and misconceptions associated with feminism, but not because of feminists, not because there are loads of feminists out there doing stuff that's deserved it, because men have made up these myths about feminism and have spread them around like you know go all the way back to the kind of 60s and 70s where the sort of myth of the bra burning feminists came from which even now is a really persistent idea it came from the the protest against the kind of Miss World pageant where feminists were protesting beauty pageants and they had a kind of trash can and they were inviting women to throw in symbols of female oppression. So women were throwing in magazines or, or high heels, some of them threw in bras. They didn't set it on fire. Any woman who knows how expensive a bra is <laughs> would never have done that. But a male journalist at the time thought it was a neat similarity with draft card burning. And so this myth was born and look how pervasive it's become. You know, at the moment there is a dedicated and insidious and very very carefully organized movement of men spreading these myths to boys online the myths that feminism wants to take away your rights that there's a vast feminist conspiracy at the heart of our government that women everywhere are lying about rape that men are the real victims of domestic abuse by vast vast quantities that um the gender pay gap is a myth this stuff is out there but it's not coming from us it's not feminists have kind of messed things up and now we need to sort of choose a different different title and for that reason I feel really passionately that we we keep the word you know we need the word mm. when you talk to kids at school and you say this is about an equal playing field and reaching a world where everyone is treated equally they immediately go oh well why don't you call it equalism then why does it have to be called feminism if it's really good for everybody and the answer is that you've got to know where we're coming from you can't solve a problem if you don't name the problem and yes it is about achieving equality for everyone but it's coming from a point where women are disproportionately negative impacted this is a gendered problem women do bear the vast brunt of sexual violence internationally they do bear the brunt of sexism and misogyny and the ways in which it's encoded into our workplaces our politics our society our lives our economics this is a gendered problem so the femme part of the word belongs there and it's important it doesn't mean that within that we're not also tackling problems that have massive negative consequences for individual men those two things aren't mutually exclusive but the word itself is important. And if it's become embattled and people have been so scared of it that they've tried to smear it, well, let them. But I don't think that that's any reason to abandon it personally. No, it's 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 shit, actually. The amount of women that I speak to who will tell me, I love everything on your page. I really, you know, it's really got me thinking about this, that, and the other, but I won't call myself a feminist. And, and when you kind of explore that, it really appears to be more because it's very unattractive to men <laughs> you know if, put I'm a feminist in a dating app profile and that, I mean that will filter out a hell of a lot you know you'll get a hell of a lot less matches um but but I, th I think it has become almost associated with kind of ugliness and mm -hmm. things that aren't ugly but that are perceived ugly by misogyny like body hair and 
you know, wearing sandals or, you know, <laughs> having a beard as a woman. You know, all of these kind of things become this really, like, ugh, yeah. ugly, you know. You only want to engage in this because men don't like you, you know. Um, and it's 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 very hard because it makes you want to go harder into the whole, I am woman, hear me roar. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know how to, com- you know, and I, and I never, again, I think we touched on this again. I never want to be that woman who says as a woman, you have to call yourself a feminist. You should call yourself feminist. Mm-hmm. It benefits you. This is why I feel much more like, okay, well, if you choose not to call yourself feminist, then, then that's fine. Cause that's what feminism is about. It's about you having the ability to choose, but I kind of almost feel like no, but you should be a feminist. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just, it doesn't matter what you call yourself, it's what you do. It's how Mm. you live your life, you know? And actually, I don't know. I think that this is shifting. I think we're seeing so many, particularly kind of Hollywood women now talking about this stuff. There's a lot of very aspirational people talking about feminism and that comes with its own problems about commercialization and all the rest of it and dilution. But, you know, I do think we're moving towards feminism being more of a kind of relatable and aspirational term. And, and, you know, in the meantime, if it filters loads of men out of your dating profile, isn't that just saving you time in the future? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, mean, yeah. It's kind of a good thing, right? (laughs) It's the best filter. And if you don't want to put it in your profile, have that conversation. Ask a man what do you know what's your views on feminism and it's a very it's a fantastic way to figure <laughs> out I spoke to someone not long ago and, and he was like what's that and I just thought well we're not you know <laughs> if I have to explain to you what feminism is then we've got a long way to go um, but a lot of them will be like oh you know yeah I believe in equal rights for women but I don't believe in feminism yeah you know and I just don't even want to have those fucking conversations I just yeah. can't be bothered you know um but I think it says a lot. But I guess maybe those are the guys who who have potential. You know, if they're saying I believe in equality, but I guess the but I don't believe in feminism usually comes from but men are, you know, having a really hard time now as well. Mm-hmm. Which isn't a separate problem. It's no, part of what we're trying it's to all tackle. The same. Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, I'm just reading through the questions. We've we've actually got most through through most of them. How do you stop yourself from feeling down and demotivated by it all? Because everyday sexism project was heavy. That must have been heavy for you to go through mm-hmm. all of those entries. And I remember you talking about one that particularly got to you. And, and it was one that really made you cry because it was from a young mm. girl. And she'd sort of given up on, she just assigned herself, you know, resigned now to, to I can't remember what it was. because It was a while ago that I read it, but it was something about she just decided that she just wasn't good enough and that men were... But that must have been incredibly difficult for you to just be in that headspace all the time. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it's still very much ongoing. We've got about 200,000 entries almost now. And so it's still, you know, hundreds of stories coming in every day, every week. Um, I think you you have to honour it. You know, it's important to sit with that, that recognition of the fact that women and girls are still facing these real atrocities on a daily basis. And the whole point of the project originally was to recognise that and recognising it is really important. I think, the, for me, the thing that stops me then tipping over into just kind of this is horrific and awful and not being able to get out of bed is is that 
there has to be a way or a hope that there is a way to to honour and respect those people who've shared their stories with me, who've trusted me with something very, very precious that they often have never told anyone before. And to use it, I'm, you know, driven, I guess, to try and use those stories to try and prevent other people going through the same thing. Something positive can come out of it. And you can see that in the work that we've done with the British Transport Police or working with government ministers or, you know, the campaign to change the school curriculum so that there's now a a compulsory element to teach about consent and healthy relationships, part of which came from showing government ministers the thousands of entries we'd had from schoolgirls about being abused in school. Um, and, And there are individual stories that give you real hope. You know, so many people write, I didn't know that what happened to me wasn't normal. I didn't know it was abuse. I didn't know I had the right to report it until I read the other stories and suddenly I realized I wasn't alone. There was a woman in her 80s who wrote that she had been sexually assaulted and had for decades carried this burden because she'd been told it was her own fault. And she said the the relief that she experienced, that she read these stories and for the the first time she ever felt that it wasn't her fault and that she wasn't alone. And we hear from so many women who have reported something to the police or have objected to sexual harassment in their workplace, girls who've started feminist societies at their school and challenged sexist dress codes. You know, there is so much positive coming back from it. It's not just a repository of kind of horror. It's also a kind of constantly evolving space of of hope. And it's a community and a place of solidarity and catharsis and progress, hopefully. And so many men are writing in saying, you know, funny things, people talking about it, how it relates to their life. There was this guy who wrote in and said that he'd been reading it and he, he'd sometimes whistled at women in the street and it just never occurred to him because he would do it like once every three years. It never occurred to him that for that woman, it was one out of 20 things that happened that day. And he mm. read these stories and he just couldn't believe it. And then a few days later, he was out in the street and he saw some women being catcalled by builders up ahead of him. And these guys were shouting, get your tits out. And he panicked and he was like, I have to do something. This is my moment. I've got to challenge them, but I haven't got a speech prepared. I don't know how to <laughs> say it. And so he just panicked and he lifted up his T-shirt and showed them <laughs> his tits instead. And it was great because it was his way of saying, I love this man. Like, if you wouldn't do it to me, don't do it to them. Mm. There's so many of stories like that, you know. There was a woman who was walking down the street and a guy was shouting abuse at her, but he was working up on a up on a roof. And because he was up on a roof, she felt able to shout back in a way she wouldn't normally. So she kind of challenged him and said, like, what are you doing? How would you feel if someone was shouting about your genitals as you walked down the street? You know, it's awful. And he reacted really badly and started kind of shouting worse abuse at her. So she took down his ladder and just left him to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. So, you know, these are tiny, tiny examples, but there are so many of those stories coming in, you know, people who are saying that it just was enough to let them think that they weren't alone and that they could do something about it. I think the the sharing of stories is so important. I think we mustn't underestimate how valuable it is to just have such a, a massive range of people and, I, you know, I, I have a love-hate relationship with social media and, and the internet mm. because I think there's some really dangerous, dark elements that that are actually making misogyny worse. Yeah. But then I think that it's given such an opportunity for women to have platforms and voices. Um, and, and you're right, it does have that kind of avalanche effect in, in that you hear one woman being confident in talking about her rape or, or whatever and going, oh, yeah, A, that... I'm not alone, yeah. but B, I'm going to now be able to 
respond differently when I hear people talking about things because now it's a, it's a conversation. Mm. Um, and, and that's something you must be so proud of, really. You've achieved a great deal. Do you feel proud of what you've done? I think, yes, when I stop to think about it, but you don't often because you're so focused on how far there is still to go, you know? There is still yeah. so, so much to do, so it's onwards. <laughs> it's deflating, isn't it? I did a, a whole thread on catcalling um, recently, and, and it was like a kind of big, long thread and sort of used some TikTok video examples, mm-hmm. so I felt like it was really clear. It was off the back of this bloody daily mail article um where they were discussing the fact that cat calling uh may now be outlawed you know become an, a, a, an actual crime and then they got in two women one who was you know saying absolutely cat calling should be a crime and then of course another one who was like oh it's harmless fun it helps me know that i've still got it you know typical Classic daily mail, daily mail approach. bullshit yeah. <laughs> um and i kind of you know, went through and picked apart everything she'd said and kind of, uh, and then at the end of it, so I have so many women were just like, yes, yes, yes. And then at the end, this man sends me a DM and he's trying to be, he, you know, he's not trying to be nasty, but he's just like, you know, I really want to know as a good, innocent bloke, how is it, you know, if we outlaw this, how are genuine men ever going to be able to approach <laughs> women again? And it's like, ah, I love it when they say that because it proves how completely ridiculous the whole argument is because you can't have it both ways. Those are always the same, like, not all men guys, right? Yeah. Like, the yeah. it's just a, you know, how can we do a compliment? It's the same. It's the not all men guys. But those two things are completely opposite. Like, either it's, oh, women are misinterpreting things, you know? He, he just meant it as a compliment. It's mm. these poor bumbling men who are accidentally assaulting women left and right <laughs> without meaning to, and it's not there. In which case, it is all men. Or it's not all men, in which case you've got to acknowledge that most men are perfectly able to know the difference between striking up a conversation and harassing someone, between giving someone a compliment and making them feel terrified that you're going to follow them home. Yeah. You know, nobody thinks that you shout tits out of a moving car and a woman turns around and says, please marry me. Yeah. Everybody knows that there is a difference there. And it's so insulting. And so it's such a red herring argument, you know, mm. this idea that there wouldn't be any courtship anymore and the human race would die out yeah. if <laughs> men weren't allowed to harass women, like no babies would ever be born again. Like harassment isn't sexy. Yeah. It's not turning women on but it's such a common thing on the today program they said this they said is me too a witch hunt and it's a risk that like no one in in parliament would ever be able to to date again and you just think what planet are they on yeah it's really scary isn't it but but also so so ill-informed because i mean like people aren't even going to prison for the worst rapes and sexual assault and suddenly men think they're all going to be carted off for whistling you know or, or saying hi to someone you know it's just like get a fucking grip um but it just it, it and that is the problem it's these kind of nice guys these kind of old oh, guys who think they're being nice like you know i'm totally on board i'm not 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 all men guy but you know how is this going to impact on men <laughs> yeah. oh, i don't care actually you know <laughs> let's focus on the issue um somebody asked a, a specific dating question okay. Um, which actually I, I feel like we've sort of covered this, but but I'm going to ask it anyway. She said, I'm dating a wonderful man. He's kind, respectful, but he does carry a lot of toxic masculinity. He likes to be the man, is very proud and has a delicate ego in relation to his manhood. My worry is that if we have sons in the future, that he will teach them to be like this. Is this a deal breaker or can I break the cycle? 
Gosh, well, only she knows, but it's this thing again of can she break the cycle? Why should it be on her? Why Mm. should that be her work to do? You know, these are his problems. And and again, it's just women being these kind of rehabilitation centers. And it really strikes me that she that you if you're listening, that you talk about potential sons. But what about you? You know, your worry shouldn't just be for your future kids. It's also about you and how this makes you feel and how this impacts you. And you're deserving of a relationship where you're not having to contend with this stuff. I suppose my answer would be that it's about his willingness to tackle it. You know, if this is something he won't even talk about, then I think that's a real red flag. If this is something that he can work on, that he can do the necessary work, then, you know, that's something. But it shouldn't be on you. It's not your job to fix him. No, exactly. Very difficult to get someone to do the work if they are very proud and like to be the man. Mm. And, and, And then, you know, I guess what it means to be a man to him is the key here and actually those type of men as we've discussed tend not to want to change tend not to want to go to therapy tend not to want to do the work Mm. you know um and and the other interesting thing i found here is that she's dating a wonderful man he's kind and respectful but he carries a lot of toxic masculinity and 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 actually the two kind of aren't mutually exclusive you know in in a in a in a way um I think that's when it becomes challenging with our dads and our brothers Mm. and things like that, because actually, you know, sometimes they can be, they'll do anything for anyone. They'll help you in the middle of the night. You know, they're kind, they're loving, they're wonderful, but they hold these views about women, Mm -hmm. um, which are dangerous and toxic and whatever else. But because they're held by a man who is so lovely and kind and wonderful, it can be, tempting to just go well he's a lovely guy the misogyny doesn't matter yeah but but people can change you know attitudes can can change and and whenever people say oh it's that generation or it was a different time it it wasn't really a different like it's never been okay Mm. you know and there have always been people who have stood up to this stuff that hasn't always been impossible and I just think, you know, if you look at something like attitudes to drink driving, they changed so dramatically in the space of like a decade. Drink driving went from being this really kind of sexy, cool thing to do to being really kind of not cool and not OK to do. And it happened because the government put a huge amount of money and effort into public awareness campaigns. And the cost to the public of domestic violence and, you mm. know, women being raped and murdered is similarly high. So if the government were to take on, take the initiative to do something like that, I don't think we have to just Except that there's a whole generation of men who will always have these beliefs and there's nothing we can do. And I also worry because there is this suggestion that these ideas will just die out, that they're just held by those generations and it's just who they are, and that the young generation is completely woken on board and it's all going to be miraculously fixed when they move up into, into you know, important mm. positions. But, you know, look at the allegations that are coming out of schools. Look at the British Attitude Survey, which asks people if they think a woman is fully or partially to blame for being raped if she was uh i think it's if she was drinking or if she was flirting and about a quarter of the public believe that she's to blame if she was doing one and a third if she was doing the other but if you look at it aggregated by age if you look at the youngest age range that they ask i think it's 18 to 24 that group the numbers go sky high they are much higher these myths and misconceptions this radicalization that's happening to the younger generations we mustn't miss it we've got to recognize it it's very worrying but what do you do can we i mean because because music i I find music really worrying 
um what you know I, I i actually i like grime i like rap i like hip-hop i like some drill music i'm obviously not necessarily their intended market but you know my son will soon be a teenager and soon will be their intended market mm-hmm. and y- you know I, I love a good beat but then when i actually stop and listen to what they're saying about beating women and yeah. you know as in sexually, you know, the terminology for sex is beating or smashing or daggering or whatever. Um, and it's all just very violent and very, it, you know, and then the, you know, the men are fully dressed in the videos and the women are twerking about around them in very little. It's all yeah. hyper-sexualization um, steeped in, in misogyny. And, and it shouldn't be legal, you know. But if I mean, if I was to start a campaign, like, you know, get rid of this song by this young man because he <laughs> talks about this or that, you know, people would just take the piss. Yeah. But but I think that those things are really influential. Mm-hmm. But they're also a symptom, I think. This is a bit like the thing with kind of sexist jokes. And I don't think the aim of feminism is to sort of put anyone in jail who ever tells a sexist joke or outlaw particular lyrics in songs. It's to reach the end point as a society where it wouldn't occur to anyone to write a song like that in the first place or to tell that joke in the first place. And the only way to do that, I think, is to start at the beginning. And, you know, like, it's a bit like the arguments about online porn as well. You know, all of these things, there's no one of these things is responsible for a child's whole worldview. But when you put them together, when you look at video games and you look at music and you look at the online world and social media and you look at online porn and you look at the film industry and all of these things together, they're sending a really powerful message. And you can't send your child around blindfolded with earmuffs on, right? Like, we can't ever prevent them from being exposed to some of these influences whichever ones they are but what we can do is give them the tools to deal with it yeah we can talk to them about this stuff from a really young age so that when they come across that stuff they notice it they don't just absorb it as part of the way the world is because it's presented to them without any kind of conflicting viewpoint or any kind of like challenge they're able to kind of engage with it critically and and that doesn't mean they won't necessarily carry on enjoying that kind of music or whatever it is Mm. but they'll be able to see it and recognize it and kind of challenge it and i think that's what matters giving them the tools to kind of participate in a different way i totally agree i i was watching greece the other day with my son and um there's that scene where they're at the drive-in and danny zuko puts his arm around sandy and he kind of tries to touch her boob and kiss her and she's like oh no danny stop uh, and then he tries again and she's like oh no 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 stop and i never really paid much attention to that scene when i was growing up. i've watched that film about seventy five thousand times um but when i was watching it with my son i paused it and i said what do you think's happening here you know do you think who who's in the right you know and we discussed it and even though it was a very minor kind of scene i thought this is what i have to keep doing yeah. i have to keep making sure and and i actually think it's really difficult for parents but um I'm not suggesting watching porn with your children. That would be really awkward. But I do think that there is a lot of room for when they reach secondary to be aware that they will have porn in their pockets. And sometimes the porn that is in their pockets on WhatsApp will be a video of a girl who goes to their school being raped or looking like she's consenting to some kind of sexual act, you know. And I, and I think that we really need to start having those conversations about how you interpret porn and and what female pleasurable sex looks like and and all of those things and i and i think we have to swallow our kind of oh um 
and do it and the the younger that you start doing that the more easy it will be when they're teenagers to just be able to introduce those kind of conversations um so kind of set if you're lucky enough to have younger kids now set the scene now so all of that just can flow without it being like all of a sudden this random conversation about porn totally i couldn't agree more and whenever you say that people go you can't talk about sex with you know like four or five year olds but when you talk to a kid of two when they're going off to nursery and you say you don't hit other kids no one goes you can't talk to them about violence Mm. at that age and it's just the same right you can teach them this is your body you get to choose what happens to your body and someone else gets to decide what happens to their body this stuff is totally possible in an age-appropriate way and you're so right like that then sets up a kind of flow for communication which is so useful later on when they're likely to be confronted with this stuff yeah and if people are listening and thinking no not my teenager we know we've got the stats that a quarter of young people are 12 or younger when they first seen online porn and 60 percent have seen it by the age of 14 and actually there's a brilliant new study out of durham university um, that found that one eighth of all of the kind of easily visible (coughs) very kind of easily accessible mainstream acts shown on porn websites videos on porn websites are showing illegal acts so Mm. women being raped or degraded or humiliated it's in the mainstream kids don't have to go looking for it it's what they're confronted with in the very very first mainstream website they look at yeah i mean uh, i did a a a podcast with we can't consent to who who are just amazing um and, and we looked at that we just opened a porn uh page and the first thing that comes up is like so much incest Mm -hmm. um so much incest so much rape so much i found my stepsister sleeping you know and i think that that we have to be really conscious of of the exposure to that kind of stuff as normality exactly you know because the impact that if especially if we have younger children in the household um you know we see this i mean i'm a social worker by trade i worked in child protection for a long time and we see this playing out in real life yeah people seeing incest porn uh or young boys seeing it and thinking oh is that what you do with your sleeping system cool yeah um so so yeah i think we, we we must be bold and we must we must know what's out there and we must feel comfortable in using that language and having those conversations mm-hmm. with anyone who listen, actually, not just our children, yeah. really. But we should be having these, all of this should be normalised, everything that we're talking about today. So it's just part of the language and part of the culture. But it's it's difficult. It's also difficult you know Mm, absolutely I couldn't agree more and that's really been my experience that normalization like you say not realizing it's wrong because there's a vacuum if no one's talking to them about consent elsewhere and they're seeing this stuff online it's so common for me to hear kids of about 12 or 13 in school saying things like rape is a compliment really it's not rape if she enjoys it you know I went to a school where they'd had a rape case involving a 14 year old boy and a teacher had said to him why didn't you stop when she was crying and he had said because it's normal for girls to cry during sex because that's what he'd seen online and that mm. is such a common viewpoint to hear from kids well i mean I, I hear it even from 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 grown men that they believe that women enjoy painful sex that sex isn't good unless we're going ah ah you know and sort of yeah. backing away from the from a penis that's battering our cervixes you know uh and then conversely we then start engaging in painful sex thinking well that's normal that's what i see and you know it's, it's it's infecting everybody um not not just teenagers you know it it, it, it carries on all all the way through um but then the problematically when you 
you know, I'm always accused of being boring and having a shit sex life, you know, when I talk about these things, <laughs> or even kink shaming, um, which is a really difficult... Yeah but, yeah, but that's really important, right? We're not talking about specific communities. We're talking about stuff that's on mainstream sites. Yeah. It's not kind of... We're not talking about stuff here that is kind of demarcated as specific kind of S&M type stuff, yeah. BDSM, stuff where people have, you know, safe words and have consented in advance. We're not... It's None of that stuff is what we're describing and talking about we're talking about videos which actively show women being degraded and humiliated and abused for the sake of a man's enjoyment but not theirs you know this yeah. is it, it is a separate thing I think that's important to say yeah so again it's another area where something has to be done I, I I really I really think that there has to be you know I'm all for freedom and liberation and, and whatever and not living in a nanny state but I think porn needs to be much or access to porn needs to be much more controlled and I know they were doing something about you'd need to show your passport or driving license or whatever to access porn sites. But then that kind of co that conversation sort of went away. Yeah, I think they realised it, was, it wasn't it was going to happen because it was such a, an incredibly powerful and, and a huge money-spinning industry. I think, and I think they realise when it comes to technology that whatever controls we as an adult generation are putting on, young people are going to get around them. And mm. I think for me, I'm not saying I don't think that it's a good idea, but realistically, pragmatically, I think the best thing we can do right now is to be taking action to talk to young people, to assume that they might come across this stuff and to really give them the tools to challenge it and to talk to them about healthy relationships and all the other stuff outside of it. So it's not the only input they're getting into what sex is and what they'll be expecting to do and and I think you're so right actually you touched on this earlier that one of the best ways into that conversation particularly for young for boys is talking about female pleasure and what mm. women like so it's not coming from a kind of puritanical perspective of you've watched porn you're evil you're a terrible person it's coming from a perspective of if you happen to be a guy who likes women and if it happens to be that at some point in the future you might want to have a sexual relationship with them what you're seeing on screen is not going to help you you know yeah. it's not going to make them happy <laughs> yeah exactly if you want to be the one where everyone's like whoa he's a god among exactly. men yeah then do it right and I think there is something awkward you know pe people have sort of People often ask me, what should I, you know, my daughter's going to school now. Should I teach her that she's, or, you know, she's young daughter, not going to secondary school, but should I teach her that she's got a vagina or um, uh, should I call it something else? And of mm. course, I'm a great advocate for it always being vulva, vagina, the real names. Yeah. But also, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with teaching our sons about clitorises you know yeah. um and not making that like again like a this is a naughty conversation you know girls mm. have clitorises yeah. that's how they receive pleasure you know talk, talk really early about these things normalize them Definitely. um well we've come to the end we've answered everybody's questions um i want to make sure that everybody pre-orders your book Thank your you. new one is it the trial it is called the trial Pre-orders are so important for authors. Um, I didn't realise how vital they were before I started writing a book. Um, so if you know that you love Laura's writing, if you don't know, then you need to start reading it. Um, <laughs> and especially if you've got young women in your life, what, what would you say is a good age range for, for, the, for the book? Um, I'd say probably around 14 and up, but I'd always recommend that an adult give it a skim first and see what they think. Because for some children, it might be that much younger, they're kind of ready for these themes. And for others, it might be a bit older. Yeah. Um, so, so if you've got teenage girls in your life, when's it out? September. Oh, nice. So pre-order it um, and have a look at the others. 
everyday sexism men who hate women i cannot recommend them enough best some of the best books i've ever read um i've quoted you quite a few times in in my book i might need permission for that i might need your permission for that actually definitely have my permission thanks (laughs) i'll send this to legal um but yeah thank you so much for coming on i think it's a really important conversation i hope this podcast has helped uh people to start thinking about ways that they can start challenging sexism and misogyny and uh, and just thank you you're brilliant thank you so much for having me